Psalm 59, my mighty fortress. That's our God, isn't it? My mighty fortress, Psalm 59. Just like last week in Psalm 57, I skipped a chapter. I explained why last week, so I won't go into all that. But we're in Psalm 59 this Sunday. But that heading that sits over top of the chapter is important. In fact, I mentioned this last week. In the Hebrew Bible, that's verse 1. It's that important. So it mentions a couple things. We won't spend a lot of time there with a couple of them. Do not destroy. A well-known tune or maybe a well-known saying possible reference to the prayer of the hearts of God's people that God would not destroy them, but that he would look with mercy upon them. It's unknown for sure. And then miktam, it's a phrase that don't know for sure what it means. The actual word means golden, and there's a reference to an inscription in the Septuagint, so the idea that it's something valuable, something that maybe was inscribed, so it's important and valuable. But it references a point in David's life and a story. It says, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. So I wanted to read that story briefly today. So we're going to go back into the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 19, verses 11 to 18. It'll be up here on the slide. What is David talking about? Well, this is the actual account. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol, laid it on the bed, covered it with a garment, putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me? This is Saul's daughter, by the way, Michael, that he had given to David as a wife. Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled, made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naioth and stayed there. A couple things in that story. I find a little humor there. Um, That's just me. (laughs) I find humor in a lot of places. But, okay, so Saul sends his killers to go get David. Go to the house, get him and kill him, okay? So they go there. His wife meets them at the door and goes, David's sick today. And so what do they do? They go back to Saul. And Saul has to send them back. Do you get it? Can you imagine being Saul? Okay, you're sitting there and you're and they come back and you're, you know, what's the report, guys? How'd you kill him? How'd he go? He's sick. It's like, do you have to wait till he's well to kill him? Really? And so Saul's like, just bring him, you know, just bring him in his bed and I'll take care of business. That's how serious things were in this story. Now, this is the beginning of the story of David's life where he had to flee from Saul. He's going to spend many years now in the wilderness, and we've talked about some of these, where he's hiding in caves and things like that. 
But this story is from the, here to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, David is going to be fleeing from Saul for his life. So these men are outside his door, sent from Saul to kill him. That's the situation that David is writing Psalm 59. So it gives us a little bit of the historical background there that's maybe helpful. So let's read the first four verses and look at this chapter a little bit. The main idea we're going to see today is when trouble rises up against us, God lifts us up in his strength and love. By the way, <clears throat> as I thought about that, waiting outside his door to kill him, my mind immediately went to the Jason Bourne movies, the Bourne series, where he's literally, all, all those movies, he's running from these top agents who are out to get him, you know? And so, in my mind, that's kind of what David was doing here. He had to run for his life. This was serious business. These were professional killers sent from the top, from King Saul himself. This was serious. So here's David in the first four verses. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers. Save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me? Fierce men, they conspire against me. For no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. Does this sound familiar to you, these first four verses? It should because it seems like every chapter that we've been doing this summer starts out very similarly. It's David in a heap of trouble looking to God for help. Lord, I'm here again. Deliver me. These are personal lament psalms. God, I need you. And so you could literally almost insert chapter 47, chapter 47. 56 back into here and they'd be very similar I want to bring out a couple things first of all at the beginning and end of this chapter they call it an inclusio it's bookends it's brackets at the beginning it's God deliver me at the end the last verse it's God you've delivered me it kind of bookends it together we're going to see that in this chapter the other thing I wanted to point out as we read through this take note of the personal pronouns, my God, my strength, my tower of refuge, my fortress. You know, it's one thing to know that God is these things. It's another thing to have personal experience with God in your own life and know that He is these things. You can know that God is all-powerful, right? because it says that in Scripture, and that's true of God. It's one of His attributes. But to know that God is all-powerful in your own life, you are my Savior. You're not, a, you're not a Savior. You're not the Savior. You're my Savior. And that's what David is doing here in this chapter. And that's why the sermon title is My Mighty Fortress. God is a mighty fortress, but He's my mighty fortress, David says. So, in these verses, he's going to request some things from his mighty fortress. Number one, deliver me. Two times. Verse one and two. They're after me. They're hot on my tail. We've seen that in the last few chapters. They're right out, they're, they're outside my door ready to kill me, God. This is serious business. Would you please deliver me? Secondly, I want you to be my fortress. He's going to say this four times. In this chapter, he's going to call on God as his fortress. The word there is to lift up. Lift me up to a safe, protected place, God. Because right now, I am down here in the middle 
of some trouble. I need you to step in. The enemy is rising up. I need you to lift me up above them, out of reach. Be my fortress, God. Save me. Last week I mentioned save to God. That's our salvation. We come to know him. We're saved. We come into a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's salvation. But there's also a salvation, deliver me from something. That's what David's referring here to. The from is my enemies who are after me. I need to be saved from them. Would you please save me from them? It's like he's looking out the window in the house as they're at the door knocking on the door, and he's looking down on them, and he's almost like he's writing this psalm. He can see them down there, and he mentions some things about them. They're attacking. They're evildoers, God. They're evil through and through. That's who they are. They're bloodthirsty. They don't care about life. They just want to kill people. They're professionals. They lie in wait for me. They're like the lions, the lion that it talked about in the last chapter, chapter 57. They conspire against me. There's some planning going on here. They're out to get me. Notice that David is very specific with God. I think sometimes when we pray, we say, God, be with me, which is good, and that's important. But David's very specific about what's going on in his life, and he's very specific about what he asks of God. And I think in our prayer life, we can learn a little bit there. I think oftentimes we pray in generalities. God be with me today. Okay, what does that mean? So learning how to be specific about what's going on and spending time talking to God about your situation, although he knows it, you're not telling him that, but you're entering into a relationship with him. And then God, would you please be this or would you please bring this about? in my life. I think we could learn from that. The fourth request in verse 3 is C. Lord, do you see what's going on down here? I sure hope you do. Do you see what's happening? Verse 4b, look on my plight. Look at what my enemy is doing to me, God. Look at my situation. But he also directs God's attention to something different. In the end of verse 3, he says, I'm innocent in all this. God, I want you to see the fact it's nothing that I've done here. I'm not to blame for the situation that I'm in, God. He pleads his case. He's not saying he's sinless because he's not, but he's saying, I did nothing to deserve this. I didn't bring this on myself. I think oftentimes we're in a heap of trouble, but the reality is we brought it on ourselves. We all know those situations. And so we come to God And it's good to be honest with God in those situations and say, look, I did this. It's my fault. But I I need your help. I still need your help, God, and I'm sorry for what I did. But in this situation, David's saying, I wasn't to blame. I'm not at fault here, God. Please come and deliver me and save me out of this situation. Have you ever been attacked unfairly? Have you ever been accused of something that wasn't true about you? Have you ever had people come at you for something you had absolutely nothing to do with? Have you been in that situation? A lot of you, if you think long enough and hard enough, you probably can come up with a few of those in your life. And there's a great passage in 1 Peter 2 
that talks about this as Christians. And what do you do when you're in that situation? Here's what it says. 1 Peter 2, 20 to 23. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? You brought that on yourself. Well-deserved consequences of your actions. That's something else. But, but, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. To this you were called. Wow, that's, this is your calling as a Christian. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, that's a part of our calling as Christians to be like Christ, to follow in his footsteps. Jesus was falsely accused. What did he do? He didn't retaliate, he trusted his Father who judges justly. And that's what we're to do as Christians, understanding that God is our judge. We don't take vengeance ourselves, we hand it over to our Lord so we can trust him when we're falsely accused. So David, where's David's hope? He's in a mess, he's in a struggle, people are out to kill him, literally out to kill him. He turns to God, look what he says in verses five to 10. You, Lord God Almighty, you, who are God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all these nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. He's going to turn to God for his help. That's where he's going to turn. And in verse 5, he uses three names for God. We saw this in chapter 57. There it was God Most High. El Elyon. God, be exalted above the heavens. That was El Elyon in the last chapter. Here he picks three names for God. The first one is Yahweh. Whenever you see L-O-R-D in caps, it's Yahweh. That is the God of the covenant. That is the personal name that God gave himself. That's the God who says... I made promises to you, we're in a covenant together, and I'm going to keep those promises. So David says, I know I can trust you, God. You're the, you're the promise keeper and the promise maker. But he uses a second name, God Almighty, Elohim Sabaoth, God of hosts, God who is the commander of the armies of heaven. This is serious stuff here. I need some help, and I'm calling upon God Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He's the controller of all those angelic forces up in heaven. He's not only the commander of Israel's army, but he's the commander of the heavenly armies. Lord Elohim Sabaoth. And the third name is God of Israel. We're your people, God. Remember us? 
We're important to you. We belong to you. We know that you care for us. You're the God of Israel. So he's going back to God's name, who God is. And he says, because of who you are, God, because of who I know you to be, here's what I'm going to ask of you in these verses. I want you to arise to help me. I want, to, I want you to look on my plight. I want you to rouse yourself. I want you to show no mercy. Now, when he says rouse yourself, he's not saying God is asleep. Because we know, and David even says in the book of Psalms, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's in the book of Psalms. So David knows this about God, but he's saying, God, would you take up action? Would you move on my behalf here? So it's like, God, take action, not wake up. That's not what he's saying there. Punish all the nations. David doesn't want merely his own problems taken care of, but he wants God to step in on behalf of the world. He's thinking in bigger terms here than just his own little personal problems. I think sometimes we get wrapped up in our own little world, don't we? Our own personal things. And we want God to come to our aid And we miss sight of the bigger picture of what God wants to do all around us, universally. God, would you just burst on the scene in a big way here? Not only in my situation, but for the whole world. And all we have to do is look around the world today, right? And know that the world needs God. So I love how he just opens it up. He says, God, it's not just about me here, but would your name be glorified in all the world? Then he turns in verse 6 to a simile with the dogs. And he's going to do that a couple times here in this chapter. It was lions in chapter 57. Now it's these dogs. Now in our culture, dogs are kind of pets. They're cute. They're loved. They're spas for dogs. There's places, motels for dogs. There's vacations for dogs. I'm blown away by this. We love our pets. And, you know, in our culture, dogs are good. In their culture, not so much. They were peop- it was a negative connotation. When you use the word dog, that was not a compliment. That was an insult. Now, dogs were used for a lot of things in their culture. There were watchdogs. There were sheep dogs that helped with the sheep. But the reference here is to wild dogs that show up at night to scavenger the garbage that's on the streets of the city And David's saying, as I look down upon my enemies here who are coming to get me, they remind me of those dogs that go around in packs, and they just make their way through the city, and they're just tearing up things, and they're causing havoc, and they're bringing destruction. That's the picture that he has there. To me, the best picture is the hyenas in The Lion King, right? That just came out. I just went to the theater, watched it. Uh, it's a beautiful remake of the, the movie that was back in the 90s. But the hyenas, you know, they show up, and then they're in a pack, and then they're just kind of, they just kind of slowly make their way in, and they enclose their, their captors, and they just, they're sniveling, and they're slobbering at the mouth. That's the picture that David has in his mind here of these dogs. Physical attack as well as verbal It says they spew from their mouths. They're foaming. They're slobbering all over the place. Their words are sharp like a sword. So he refers to their mouths and things that they are saying. Maybe he even heard some of this as they were coming to get him. 
Maybe he heard them from up above, from inside the house. There's a couple proverbs in chapter 15 that speak of slavering from our mouths. And I just wanted to, I thought of these when I heard this, this phrase. And here's Proverbs 15 too. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge. Beautiful. But the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Spews it. Slavering all over with folly. That's a fool. They don't think. They just spit it out there. Here's the situation. In the same chapter, verse 28, the heart of the righteous weighs its answers, thinks about what they're going to say. That's wise. Process. The mouth of the wicked, they gush it. They gush evil. There's no thought about what they're going to say. They don't really care. They just spew it out there, and they don't care what the consequences are going to be. That's the situation. They're, this picture they think in their minds, and they maybe even say, who can hear us anyway? Does it really matter what we say? You know, in our culture today, I'm blown away by the language. I don't know if you've noticed it in the culture at large, as well as film, movies, TV shows. It's just shockingly bad at an all-time low. And I think, here's in my mind what's going on. I think people are saying this, who can hear us anyway? Let's just say what we want, right? It's just this gushing, not really processing, just spewing it out. It's an ugly, ugly scene. How does God respond? Look at verse 8. I love this. But you, God, you laugh. You laugh at them. Not only does God hear them, he does. God hears us. But it says God laughs. It's no laughing matter for David. His life is on the line. But for God, he looks on it and goes, really? Are you kidding me? It's humorous to him. He laughs at it. I want you to catch a pattern. We're going to see this. Verses 3 and 4 and 5, it goes they, they, they in 3 and 4. And then in 5, it goes but you. God. Then in verse 6, 7, they, 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 what they're doing, what they're doing, but you in verse 8. We're going to see this at the end of the chapter too. They, 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 God, they're out there, they're doing this and everything, but you are God. <laughs> but you laugh. Again, it's that turning away from what's going on here, the they, to you, what God is doing in this pattern we see. This idea that God is laughing, he does hear them, he's laughing. Every word, by the way, we're accountable for our words. Jesus said this, Matthew 12. He says, we're going to give an account of every word that we speak. Everyone is, not just believers, but all of mankind. So words do matter. God does hear them. They are important. So that's why I, words are an important thing. We need to consider it very seriously. This idea of God laughing, Psalm chapter 2, this was the immediate one that came to my mind. David wrote this, and he said, I don't have it on here. You want to shoot that up there? Psalm 2. Sorry about this. One more. There it is. Why do the nations conspire? The people plot in vain. The kings of the earth are rising up. There's that word. 
They're rising up, the enemies. The rulers band together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. We're better than them. We're stronger than them. But the one enthroned, God, in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Man's attempts to throw off God only bring laughter from God because he understands who he is. He understands who they are and how ridiculous that is, how ridiculous it sounds. There's this idea of laughter. And again, in verse 8, he mentions all those nations. God, I want you to keep in mind not just my situation, but I want you to see all the nations. It's bigger than just what's going on here. May this be true of worldwide, God. They're fierce, but God is strong. They're promoting chaos and anarchy, but God is my fortress, verse 9. There is the great hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. It wasn't based on this chapter. It was based on Psalm 46, which speaks of God being a mighty fortress. But it could have just as easily been based upon Psalm 59. Most of you know that song, and we sing it. Martin Luther, um, who wrote it. But there's a story, and I wanted to show a picture of a castle, a fortress. This is the Wartburg Castle in Germany. It's the place where for 10 months... In 1521, Martin Luther was held, not held captive, he was hiding, using it as a fortress because he was being chased. He was referred to as the enemy of the state, enemy of the Catholic Church by Charles V, the Roman emperor of the time. And so he was running for his life and they hid him in this castle. It's still there today, it's up on a hill, it's beautiful. A mighty fortress. It was there at this fortress where he wrote, where he translated the Bible into German, from Greek, the New Testament from Greek into German. And there's a quote that he said, um, he fought the devil with ink while he was there in that fortress, a mighty fortress. I love that phrase. Satan's out to get me, but God has lifted me up to his fortress and I'm fighting the devil with ink. I'm writing down his word. I'm translating God, the Bible into the language of my people, the German people, so they can have God's word in their hands. Isn't that beautiful? And so for the 10 months that he was there, he used a fake name, Knight George. He went by that name just to make sure, you know, he was safe. He did. He was released, and he went about his business after that. But there was a time where he was in a fortress. There was a time where he relied upon God as his mighty fortress. And he, we have that song today to remind us of that. Verse 10 is just a beauty. And sometimes translations don't always do things justice. That's why I like to do kind of a comparison of translations um, because there's things that are brought out that are sometimes missed. You are the God on whom I rely. That's the NIV. That's the one we're reading from today. But if you take the ESV version, I like this even better. And they're both accurate, but this one I like even better. It says, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. And then it says he will go out before me and let me gloat over my enemies. But I love that picture, his steadfast love. That's his hesed. We've talked about his covenant love. 
steadfast, loyal, enduring love, never going away. That's the kind of love God has for us. There's three things we can really just think about in this verse that are beautiful. First is that, the Hesed love of God for us, his enduring, steadfast love. The second thing is the fact that God comes to meet us. Isn't that a beautiful picture of who Jesus is? God, fully God, but he became fully man. It's called the incarnation. He took on flesh. He came to meet us. God doesn't just sit up there on his throne and go, man, you screwed up today. Or you better not do it again or I'm going to nail you. That's not the God that we know as believers. He's a God that has steadfast love for us and he comes to meet us. I love that picture. And he goes before us. He's out in front of us. He is our shepherd, right? We're the sheep. It's that beautiful picture of how God leads us. And we just simply follow him. That's what we're doing. That's what Christians are. We're followers of Christ. We just follow after him. His love, the fact that he wants to meet us, he comes to us, and that he goes out before us. What more do you need? I think in verse 10, we can pretty much call it good, but I have more. Sorry. We, but isn't that beautiful? Those three truths about what God does for us. But he continues on in verses 11 to 13. He's going to get, turn back his focus back to his enemies for a second. Do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, uproot them, bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, in the, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter. Consume them in your wrath, consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. We call this section imprecatory. That's a fancy word for raining down God's wrath upon his enemies. David does this often in the book of Psalms. He's, in a sense, he's saying, God, will you, in your holiness, in your wrath, take care of business? I'm not going to. I'm going to trust you in this. But he's looking to the holiness and the wrath of the God that he knows in relationship to his enemies. Do not kill them. It's like, let them suffer. Or let this punishment be a a gradual thing, God. Why? So that my people may learn. Don't just kill them right off the bat, God, because there will be no lesson in that. Take your time. Let it be a gradual thing because we need to look on that and learn some things. That's what David is talking about here. They attempted to create restlessness in my life. Let them wander around. They tried to bring me down, Lord, but take them down. They used their mouths in a sinful manner. Let them be trapped in their pride. They spoke curses and lies towards me. Let them come to ruin. But why? Why? And this is the important part. In verse 13, then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. It isn't just because he wants vengeance on his enemies. There's a higher purpose here. It's that people would come to know God. It might take the wrath of God for that to happen. It might take the love of God 
for that to happen. But however it happens, God, the ultimate purpose in all things is God's glory. No matter what happens in my life, no matter what happens in other people's lives, God, may you be lifted up, may you be glorified. That's the most important thing. That is the ultimate goal. There was a great Puritan writer, his name is Matthew Poole, who wrote some great commentaries and was a great preacher. Here's what he said. He says, David in these and like imprecations against his enemies was not moved by his private malice or desire for revenge, but by the respect which he had for God's honor and the general good of his people. It's not about revenge here. It's not about malice in David's hearts, why he's praying down God's wrath. It's because God, may you be lifted up and glorified and for the good of his people. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 and 46. David understood this even as a young boy. And we're going to read this account, these two verses in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. This is the account of David and Goliath, maybe one of the best-known passages in all of Scripture. Here's what it says. Look at David's words here in this passage. David said to the Philistine Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. You got a lot of got a lot of weapons here, and you're tall, you're a giant, but look what he says. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Elohim Sabaoth, it's the same word that David referenced in this chapter, verse five. The God of the hosts, God, leader of the armies, whom you have defied. There's someone bigger than both of us here, and his name is Elohim Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I'll strike you down. I'll cut off your head. That's a very bold statement at this point in the story, isn't it? This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, some of those wild dogs maybe. And the whole world, why? Why? For my glory? So that Israel will be delivered from the Philistines? Yes, but there's a bigger purpose here, isn't it? So that the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. David's saying, I'm going to wipe you out by God's strength. It's all God here. It's not me. The reason I'm doing it and the ultimate benefit of this whole thing is going to be his glory. So that people will know that he is God. You know, what is God's wrath? It's the holy expression of God's lack of tolerance for sin. That's really what we're talking about, God's wrath. He hates sin. He hates what sin does to his creation. He hates what sin does to us, his children. So he acts accordingly. God's just judgments on the ungodly can also serve as instruction to the nations. His wrath can teach us, his love can teach us on both sides. David's going to end this chapter with certainty. Look at verses 14 to 17. They return at evening. The dogs are back. Who let the dogs out, right? You knew I was going to go there. They return at evening. They're back. There they are. They're back out on the streets. They're snarling like dogs. They're prowling about the city. They wander about for food. They howl, if not satisfied. Ah, these are not the confident dogs that he spoke of earlier, are they? They're unsatisfied. They're howling because their stomachs are not filled. 
They're howling. They're making a lot of racket down there. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing. In the midst of all that, I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress upon God, my God upon whom I can rely. Do you see all the my's there? He gets it. God, I've known you to be this. You're mine. We are in relationship here. You're not just out there, but you're here. You're, we're doing this together, God. At the beginning of the chapter, David is asking God for help. In verse 9, he says, I am in this fortress, and I'm watching. I'm watching to see what God's going to do. I'm confident, but I'm still watching, okay? But look what happens in the last verses. They rise up, he says, but now I'm certain of God's help. I'm confident that God's going to help me in this situation. God, they're strong, but you are my strength. They speak words of hate, but I'm surrounded by your steadfast love. They rise up against me, but you lift me up to your fortress of safety and protection. The other day, Thursday, I was out in the parking lot, and Bonnie Watzig was there. I think it was bringing some pop cans for our fundraising that we do. And she said, Ken, I really liked the acronym last week, the GUTS. God's up to something, GUTS. We need to remember that. Remember GUTS, okay? There's a lovely picture for you to take home. But she says, let me add one more word to that. And I said, what's that? She said, frog, frog GUTS. And I thought, well, there's an even lovelier picture. What does that mean? Here's what FROG means. It's an acronym. Fully rely on God. They did that in VBS, apparently, with, and it had to do with the plagues and the frogs and the plague, and they, wrote, and they did that acronym, fully rely on God. God's up to something. There we go. Frog guts. So if you, if you remember nothing else, take frog guts home with you, okay? Over lunch. Talk about that a little bit. It's a wonderful picture. God is our strength, He is our fortress, He comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we prepare for communion, here's a couple verses to think about the person of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, verse 16 to 18. There's a reference to dogs here, and I find this interesting, so I wanted to read this to you guys. And I will do that. Dogs surround me. This is David, but listen to what it says. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Hmm? All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Something's going on here. Just like David said, I'm surrounded by dogs, Jesus was surrounded by dogs. This is a reference. This is a very messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ and him going to the cross, piercing hands and feet, dividing his clothes amongst them. That's what they did at the cross. Just like David, the enemies of Christ, like dogs, they rose up against him, but he was lifted up on the cross for you and me. Isn't that beautiful? 1 Peter 2.24, we read 20 through 23 about how when we're unjustly accused, remember Jesus, because he was falsely accused. He did nothing wrong, yet they hurled insults at him. But what did he do? He trusted his father. Why? Verse 24. Here's what it says. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sins, live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. Just like David, Christ was falsely accused, but He trusted His Father. He went to the cross, and He bore our sins. And that's what we're going to remember today in communion.